Durbin was a smarter one. He would say, hey, Miller, go little squirrel and climb over the counter and get the stuff and, and run. I'll pick you up. Snowfile, Season 3, Episode 42. Big Jeff, Little Jeff. Jeff Durbin and Jeff Miller. Alternative Suspects. Q&A. The mission of the Snowfiles podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. You let this place take you over, you become a worse person than you did coming in, you know? You really have to strive to become better than you were when you first came to penitentiary by being in here because this is one of the environments where everything that can go wrong will go wrong and nobody really gives a fuck about whether it goes wrong or not. Seth's supposed to serve his time in prison until 2027, but he could get out as early as 2022 or 2023. As the prospect of his freedom gets closer, Seth becomes increasingly nervous about what he'll do with his life once he's released. He talks to me about his desire to change his life for the better. Have you listened to the season finale of the Serial Podcast, What Happened at Braley Pond? If you haven't already, it's a great time to binge all nine episodes. Download today on your favorite podcast player. I promise you won't regret it. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. I'd like to start out by asking Bruce and Ray what they thought about the Bible story the last episode because they were unable to join us. So Bruce, start with you. What did you, what did you think about that? I was, uh, I'm usually quick to write things off as coincidence. I have to be honest, but this story is really interesting. It's pretty amazing that the Bible went full circle. I mean, likely an employee at the jail or maybe a person who was in jail for a period of time, uh, took the Bible home with them from the jail. If they lived in Bloomington, I guess the Bible would have stayed local. It was a single item left in a dresser at the curb for garbage. So it was probably thrown out by mistake. And then it ends up with an employee of Jamie's longtime friend. My point, I guess, is that it's really hard for me to just write this one off as coincidence. I think it's pretty inspirational. And I think it's pretty incredible that that Bible is going to eventually get back into Jamie's hands. That's pretty much my take on it. I was, I listened to that entire podcast. Just wondering how the heck this could have possibly happened. I wonder about the travel of it, where it went, how it got out. Uh, we talked about all that on the podcast, but yeah, because they know, even throwing it away, I think it was probably accidentally left in the dresser, which is just one more thing that had to happen. But it was a box. It was in a box beside the dresser. I think is what Kim said. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe I missed that part. I thought it was in a box in the dresser, thrown out all at the same time. Yeah, because but either way, that, it seems like, how is this even possible? And then this this employee goes, hey, I have a picture of that. 
which once again, that had to stick in his brain that he, that was a big deal when he read that it, it had an impact on the employee because he was reading it and that caused him to take that photo. If he just read it real quick and didn't care, it would just it wouldn't have mattered to him at all. So it, I think Jamie's words were just even important to him as a total stranger, the guy reading the, the transcript. So he kept the photo on his phone. A lot of things had to happen for it to get back to Jamie. That's that's just incredible. Right. Ray, did you have any thoughts on it? You know, the guy was from Leroy, uh, born and raised, I guess, from Leroy. I kind of thought that was interesting. I'm just amazed at how everything just keeps kind of circulating. The places, uh, the connection between people, uh, Jamie, the, like, like Bruce said, the the friend of Jamie's who just works with the guy that, that found the Bible and, and how it keeps coming around. Uh, I was very curious as how it uh, transported from the McLean County jail out to, out to the curb where it was found. Uh, it's, it's quite a, uh, quite a circular history to it all. I, I, I just found that fascinating. I was blown away when I first heard about it. It's just, that's just such a weirdly fascinating story to me. Oh, sure. <laughs> Things like that just don't happen. Well, I think the goal now is to see Jamie hold that Bible again. So I think that's what we're all hoping for. Well, I think Kim said, uh, make another entry. Another entry. That's a great idea, too. Getting out. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool to see. For sure. And he also said that's going to be the family Bible. That's the one that's going to be on the coffee table. Well, let's get into this week's episode. Tam, when looking at the robberies committed by the Jeffs, were there any similarities between these multiple armed robberies and the Clark Station robbery? Yeah, actually, you know, there was a small amount of money taken. And that's been a discussion over and over is why would somebody rob somebody for that little bit amount of money, but it was actually always a small amount of money. I, I think on from the Econo Lodge, they got $166. From the Clark Station on Morris, it was undetermined, the amount of cash and cigarettes. I think that was the one where they said he was trying to get her to open up the safe, and she said that she couldn't. Maybe it was another one, but I thought that was kind of interesting that the robber was trying to get the person to open up the safe. And she said she couldn't. And, you know, of course, in Bill's murder, there was around $100 taken and a gun was also used. During these incidents, there were ski masks and Uncle Fester's mask used. So if they were responsible for the Clark murder, then they started using something to cover their identity, which kind of leads me to think that maybe they thought they could be recognized. Do y'all have any thoughts on that? Yes. One thing that I picked up on that sent my spidey senses off was that Durbin, when he did have to confess, he kept saying that he knew what Miller was doing with the gun and the mask, but he had no involvement in in any of that at all. He, you know, was very adamant about that. And I think it's because he's a little bit smarter than Miller. And Miller was also adamant even through his sentencing that he didn't even have an accomplice. 
So it seems like there was a discussion between the two or a directive from Durbin for himself and also Miller to kind of isolate himself from what happened inside those gas stations. And if he knows that there was a murder at one of them and that it's extremely important that he not be connected to what's going on inside there, you know, he did make every attempt to be a part of this and help organize it. Even the doctored log sheets were a lot better than an Uncle Fester mask. So it seems like he kind of knew what he was doing and wanted to stay inside the cab and knew how to cover up for it and knew how to persuade Miller to never give him up. And he denied the whole way through. That's just what sticks out to me about that. And he was saying that Durbin was part of the Aryan nation and he made some kind of uh sly comment about that, almost telling the cops, yes, he was involved, but I wouldn't say anything like that because he's part of the, you know, like a, like a, like a wink and a nod kind of thing. Yeah. Afraid, afraid of Durbin. He does have a tattoo on his face. So I don't know. I don't know what the tattoo means. I know, but you know, he does have like, do you know what it is, Tammy? Is it a star or a teardrop or something? It's like a little thing by his eye. So he's, doing something i mean i you know maybe he's not in the in that gang like miller is saying but he put a tattoo on his face i did not notice that but that's very interesting isn't that indicative of a homicide if you're in a gang don't they do that right yeah you have a teardrop on your that's usually a sign that you killed someone i'm not really an expert in that as far as i know that's what that means but i don't know what his tattoo is well, I remember zooming in on it and a picture of him as an adult, an older adult. And you can't, I can't tell, you know, I just know that it could even look like a mole from far away, but it, it's just a small tattoo under his eye, like, you know, where they put the teardrop. But um, the thing about their identifications is that Durbin was younger than Miller. Durbin was 28 and we can't get an actual height on him because there's there's a discrepancy in the paperwork. He was either 5'10 or 6'1. So he was uh, a big guy, some say 200 pounds, some say 180. So he was like Jamie's frame and he had brown hair and blue eyes and Jamie has dark blonde hair and green eyes and Jamie was 25. So Jamie and Durbin are around the, at the time of this crime around the same age body build I've seen a picture of Durbin as an adult and he's similar to Jamie still with his frame. And I mean, science does say, though, um, I've done research on this, that Jamie's a lot better looking. So there you go, Jamie. You don't really look like these pictures of Durbin. But as far as we're going with body and face and all that, I think they look similar. What I noticed was that Durbin did have the uh, elongated face. I try to imagine him, uh, you know, 50 pounds lighter when he was younger. He does have that. If he was thinner, he would probably have more of a, you know, his his face is elongated. Yeah, it's not. Jamie it's, has it, a round face. So Exactly. Yeah, it's not round like Jamie's. And that's interesting because Gutierrez, in his composite during, you know, his first ever description, he describes somebody that looks like Durbin, age 20 to 
223, white, blonde hair. He does say he's skinny and he's about 167 pounds and that he was tall, like, and he's estimated 6'2". So it could have been Durbin. I mean, I do think that our, you know, our other guy looks a lot more like the the composite who we did the other episode on. But this person who was in the gas station that Gutierrez described, not wearing a mask, not wearing a ski hat, that could have been Durbin. I always wondered that, um, especially also why Durbin would have stayed in the car and then came up with so much of a better plan for evading detection and sticking to it. Uh, maybe he learned his lesson. Maybe he knows that he was identified inside that gas station. Maybe the person Gutierrez saw didn't pull the trigger or kill Bill, but maybe it really was Durbin in there casing the place or bothering Bill. Well, we know the composites in Jamie's case changed over time, but does anyone here see any similarities of the two Jeffs and the composites presented in Jamie's case? For Miller, the pearly brown hair, I just think that would be very distinctive. But then one of the witnesses said that his hair was lighter colored at the time of the Clark Station robbery, which, and and if you had a hat on, I mean, there was never any indication whether the hair was straight or curly, or there's so many things with curly hair. The thing about that is they said at the end on that police report, when his wife had said, that's him, he confessed to it, which note in that police report that he confessed to every single thing to her that they had gotten him on and the Clark murder. And they believed all of that, but they didn't believe about the Clark murder. And at the end of it, they said, well, he doesn't have a chin scar, doesn't fit the composite. And they just cleared him. Right. And then with Martinez, we have as a group in Jamie's defense, just thrown that entire thing out because we don't think he saw anybody at all. But if you just, for the sake of entertainment, the person that he described and put into that composite looks nothing like Jeff Miller. And if he did see Jeff Miller there, he could have been a lot more specific because there was a picture of Jeff Miller in the paper from his marriage announcement. And, you know, he's a skinny, short guy. And and he was like, you know, kind of like a little squirrely, the way he was erratic and running across the highway and all this kind of stuff. Like, he doesn't look like him. He doesn't match his description. And he's a lot older than the age that Martinez depicts. So, you know, he did not see anybody there, but he certainly also didn't see Jeff Miller. You're right. And that was such a haphazard thing. I, I just, again, get tickled about him using the, you know, the Uncle Fester mask. And then we've said this before, but running across veterans with a mask on and a gun and cartons of cigarettes tucked under his arm and almost getting hit. And the people that almost hit him actually knew, knew who he was. I mean, it's just crazy to me that that whole thing so yes you can see that he was not very bright and uh, I love how you pointed out that Durbin was staying in the background and Durbin went through this whole thing about where his whole timeline and you can read this we didn't go through every single detail 
but you can read it in the police reports or statements in the police report. He just goes on and on and on about every little thing that he was doing that night. He never, to my knowledge, produced those log sheets. Is that right? Do y'all remember? I think he said he sent them certified mail or, you know, that he, that was it. Just the claim was he said he did. Well, he said he was going to. Okay. Yeah, I thought he said he was going to. I don't know if it, if if it was ever confirmed that he said that he did. I thought he said he was going to do it. I guarantee you he didn't because he's so smart. Why would he send doctored fraudulent reports? You know, he's, he wouldn't have done that. (laughs) He said, I've, he said, I'm not going to come in because I know you're going to arrest me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and see, he knows the drill. He's not an idiot. Um, and if he did the Clark, if he was involved in the Clark murder, he definitely learned his lesson. And he's a little bit more of a, an experienced defender. And obviously Miller is not. He did not learn his lesson and he's not very experienced. So, And, and what's interesting to me is they had all of these this whole string of armed robberies that were going on and they were not, they, they did different, different places, right? I mean, a, a, a motel, you know, a Clark gas station. There were even after Jamie's arrest, of course, was when these things happened. And, uh, you know, there were other Clark stations that were robbed. They had a task force because they thought that it was all the same person doing these. You know, right, there was a major wouldn't. crime spree that spurred a task force at the time. And they have this, these two guys that are robbing all these gas stations, but somehow they can't seem to think that they could have possibly done the Clark station. Or, or others. Right. You know, there were, there were others, plenty of others that were done that they, they pinned on other people or they just never solved them. Even though they put the task force together to see who was doing this, this is the only grouping that I've seen, you know, where they got two people for three things. And what what stands out to me is them getting cleared for the Clark murder is because it makes me wonder if they knew that they were a suspect in that homicide. And that's they I mean, they made plea deals. So are you going to go down for a homicide or are you going to go down for armed robberies? Right. So if you're Jeff Durbin, are you going to happily take 20 years when you claim you only drove the guy there and you had nothing to do with anything that happened in those stores? You're not going to do that unless you're like, okay, yeah, 20 sounds good to me. I'll be out in half the time because I've been racking my brain. Like, how did he get 20 years and Miller only get 18? But, you know, you just made me think of it. You know, it was a great deal if you're... If you're you know, facing life without stuff. parole, right. right? That's a good point to make too. Twenty years is a pretty stiff sentence for what he did in comparison to life without parole. That might have been a deal. It doesn't seem like a deal to us because twenty years is a long time. But if you think there's a chance you're going to get out, I guess that a, a deal a guy like Durbin might take. And they did get out. I yeah, mean, right. they got out. Miller got out first, and they're out. Is there any other yeah. reports of them? firing weapons at any other any of these other robberies were weapons ever fired not that i'm aware of ray you know to to be fair i mean you you mentioned the task force that they had going on and there were a lot of robberies like you said the uh, motel the gas stations there were some grocery stores done at the time and to, to be fair to bloomington police they 
they did kind of have Durbin and maybe Miller on their watch list, I would say. There are other times when items from Durbin and Miller were tested. There was a there was a, a weapon that was tied to the mobile mark that they tested. That was a 22 that Bloomington police tested. They come back from the state police saying that there's no way that gun could have been used to shoot Billy Little, but they did have it. And we don't have any record of where they recovered that from, who they recovered it from as an individual. It just said Mobile Mart, the crime number, and it was tested. And they, they had the electrostatic footprints from the, the Empire Clark Station that they compared it to, to Durbin's boots. Again, negative, but, you know, there's no... Jamie made a point that the big question is how they cleared all these people from Clark Station. And that's what we don't ever, we don't ever have. They had a gun, not Clark gun, but what else could they have looked at? The boots. Why were they looking at the boots? They thought they, they thought they may be involved, but we don't know where they stopped looking, how they said, okay, definitively it wasn't Durbin and it wasn't Miller. It did Billy Little. By the same token, nobody can put Jamie to being at the Clark Station with Billy Little. Didn't he say at some point somebody said he jumped over the counter and he left his footprint on there and he laughed and said, ha ha, the joke's on them or something like that, because those boots were a size 10 and I wear a size 8. I was like, yes. It was Miller jumping over the counters. Uh, Durbin was sitting in his taxi cab, I think. But those are the things that keep popping up. Isn't coming over the counter another similarity, though, the, you know, of a possibility of causing a scuffle? Right. And also, if Bill's body was found blocking that entryway or, you know, because that weird Bill was shot on the left on his like kind of on the front, his front left. So it would have been like kind of while he was facing that backhand corner where he'd be in front of the register. And the only way to get back there is to step over him blocking the entrance. So, yeah, he could just hop right over and they never fingerprinted or did any prints on that counter it's just speculation for me too but i was thinking uh, leslie when you mentioned the erratic behavior uh, when he's running across the highway almost getting hit by two cars maybe miller was on you know drugs couldn't the clark station the one time shots were fired could have been another guy acting erratically Right. But the shots are too good, you know, so it could have been very erratic. But I almost wonder, like, how good do you have to be from close range? Yeah, it would have to be like such a coincidence, you know, that he got those shots like so perfectly. I would almost think that Bill would have survived. But um, if it was somebody on drugs acting crazy because he would have been shot in the head or something, I think. I don't know. It's just, uh, of course, it's, it's all possible. speculation, it's all right? Speculation, I was just thinking about- But yeah, it's the same thing. I think about it all the time. You know, I look at the diagrams and it's just, it's amazing that anybody could have pierced all four chambers of the heart. The only thing he missed was the aorta. He got everything else. So 
you know, well, it's, just, see that, it's amazing. Things like that happen all the time. Drive-by shootings, a shot comes through a front window and does the same thing. So I don't think we are assuming the guy was a sharpshooter by any means. I think it's just <laughs> exactly. the way it happened. Yeah. Exactly. And I was going to bring that up because. It's just the I, way it happened. Yeah. We've, we've, we've talked to multiple people about this that are, that, you know, know about guns and how they shoot and all of that stuff. And that would, that was very unusual the way that that kill shot, you know, the way, the way that he died, because it was like a, a perfect shot, but we don't think that it was some type of somebody knew that it was going to go in that way. I just want to make a quick point about the composites because we moved on pretty fast from that. But anybody listening already knows this. But in this episode, the the two Jeffs don't really fit the composites well. But it's a very important to continue to point out that Jamie didn't fit either one of those composites either. I think we moved, we were going to mention that. I think we moved on from it because, you know, the conversation went in another direction. But the composite was so important in the previous episode where the guy fit it perfectly. Gatson. Um, yeah. <laughs> Looked just like it. But in this one, I don't think it's as, it's not as important in the storyline. I think the Wait other aspect of these. Tra- two- you're making me think of something, though. Maybe it was Durbin and Gatson. Because Gatson, wasn't he also like a little aggressive, squirrely, violent, drug using jerk i mean did he <laughs> did is there any connection there that's something else that could have been explored maybe he moved on to miller if he is the mastermind of these things maybe by six months later in august he got somebody better to who to do this this stuff for him maybe a stretch maybe I a know. stretch <laughs> um. <laughs> it's a well, stretch but again you know did they even know each other that's a good segue, Bruce, into the the T and J question. <laughs> this, for the that this is a good segue into uh, internet sleuthing gone wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's the next question? I'm I'm sitting here, you know, in my own mind, wondering how funny it would be if the if the police drew a composite of the Uncle Fester mask. <laughs> <laughs> this old man with rings around his eyes <laughs> ray so ray already talked about the the 38 i, I don't know if we mentioned there oh it's uh, right here um ray we know that miller used a 38 what was bill little's murder weapon well, Bill, Bill Littles, that's, <laughs> that is probably the only definitive thing from that crime scene is that it, he was shot by a 22 caliber, probably a revolver. And they know that they, they have a list of uh, weapons that could be, uh, could have fired that bullet, but not a 38. Is one gun really a way to clear? people that fit other aspects of the case, though? Or isn't it possible that Miller had more than one gun? Well, didn't Miller find the gun after? Did he find it after the murder of Bill Little? Is that when he stole it out of that car? We, we don't well, know we any, don't. anything on where that thirty-eight came from. There's no police reports that kind of match that up to Miller or Durbin, anybody. I'm sorry to interrupt, but... What's really important is that it was one of the witnesses who said it was a thirty-eight, and that oh. was like in the in the Crime Watch episode. 
you know, they referred to it as a 38 special. The witness that was sitting in the van when he was talking about him running, running across the highway said he was waving around a 38. Now, I don't know that he actually knew that was a 38. It's just something that people say. The 38 special was a something that people said back in the day. Again, this guy was was running from a gas station and he just robbed in front of a, a witness. The witness says a 38 special, but as you're running by, I mean, there's you could not tell the difference between a, a 38 and a 357 or a bigger gun even. They all look the same. Right. I just... I just Googled it and there's so many exhibits of them side by side and there there's so many Google images because of this problem. So there's so many images of them to scale side by side and literally they look identical to me. So my yeah. question to Ray is completely flawed because we don't know if Miller really used a 38. That's just a witness statement. That was a witness statement. So I'm running by with a 38. The woman, the woman in the Econo Lodge. She said he had a gun. She thought it was a a revolver. She compared it to her own personal gun. She said the barrel was longer than her personal gun. Right. And nothing more than that. When uh, the two Jeffs were arrested, um, were any guns taken in? Did the police recover any weapons? As I mentioned before, in, in the records, when we, we started fully in all the lab reports associated with this crime, and one of the reports that popped up is that a gun used in the, and they compared it to the mobile mark. And it was a gun recovered. It was a Harrington and Richardson 22. And they only listed to the mobile mark crime. It doesn't say who had it, where it was recovered. The lab report says it wasn't in good operating condition and just by the characteristics on the bullet, that gun could not have fired the bullet that killed Billy Little. The, the lands and grooves were just completely, that gun could not have created those markings. But there was a gun recovered. We don't know. There's, it goes to Bloomington's records that they're shabby to say the least. It doesn't say where this gun came from, who had it, if they found it in in one of their cars, if it was in one of their houses, if it was on one of their persons, nothing. Uh, it just was, there was a comparison made and it, they had a 22 at one point. But their investigation leaves a lot of unanswered questions is what you're saying. Their investigation leaves a, a, a lot of unanswered questions. Right. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. Real quick, Ray, I had a question. The police really have no obligation to tell the public how they cleared a suspect, correct? Like if they're doing an investigation like this, they have 20 possible leads. They don't have to tell the public every time they clear somebody. Well, the obligation would just be their their responsibility. They have, they, 
as, as a police officer, you would always try to eliminate the same, you would eliminate the suspects by their alibis and such to the same degree that you would want to uh, have evidence to convict somebody. In your professional opinion, you think that there should be more explanation for why these suspects were cleared. Exactly. Okay, that's my point. I I didn't know if there's any professional obligation to do it or if it's more of a moral obligation because it leaves us, you know, searching for clues on how they possibly cleared these guys. Well, wait, wait, wait. There is a legal obligation to disclose information that may be favorable to the defendant including alternative suspects. So when they have somebody like this who was committing similar crimes, it is their obligation to turn that information over on how they were cleared if they are a viable alternative suspect. That is a legal obligation. That That's a little bit different than the police telling the public but right, you know, certainly in the court of law, you'd be committing Brady violations by not turning that over to the, to the defense. Because we're it, sitting here all these years later trying to find out how these people are possibly cleared based on the evidence we have. Because these two could, should have never been cleared. This case should still be open. I mean, these these guys, there's nothing to clear these two. And, but, and it could be in those, uh, you know, 7,704 documents that's what we're uh, hoping we for. We don't know. But again, that was not turned over to Jamie prior to trial and in 2007. So right. uh, when he went pro se. So there's a um, hell of a lot more evidence to clear Jamie right now to the, and on this day than there is to clear these guys. I mean, that's just fact. So I was just curious what uh, Ray's take on that, because I don't know what the not in the court of law, but as far as during an investigation, I don't know what the expectations are for police to release information, you know, before an official trial starts. Like I said, just to, to do their job properly, they should be looking at, they should be looking at Martinez and verifying his statement. And they should have looked at, looked at the Jeffs and, and such like that. I mean, we've had our ideas of suspects. Uh, I, I'll mention them again. Eddie Hammond, testified against Jamie. He was my prime suspect for doing this crime. He had, he was found with a 22 that matched uh, in his possession. He was, he did armed robberies. It's not in the Bloomington police reports, but I, I went through FOIAs and through the McLean County Sheriff's Department and uh, his, his history and such like that. And he was locked up, but, if you look at Bloomington Police Department reports, all this stuff on Eddie Hammond goes through, and it never once mentions that he was actually cleared because he was in jail and couldn't have done it. They did do that other ones, Mike Connolly. They checked him out. They cleared him by saying he was arrested in Massachusetts or Connecticut, wherever it was. They did do some of that. But the reports that may come to Jamie's attorney will have some different names and, and maybe maybe more reports than what we've got. I mean, we have leads that just say 
example, the one with, with Jeff Miller's wife. If you look at the index that we've received, it says that lead is still open, which was never closed. So it remains to be seen. I did want to point out just to end this topic that Miller did say that he got the gun from a car burglary. He said he got a gun and cigarettes from a car. And then the police proceeded to try to find that incident of anything being reported stolen. He gave them the, a description of the car and there was never, never a report. Now, if the guy had an, or the person had a, an illegal gun or something like that, he's probably not going to report it being stolen from his car. But that is where Miller said that he got the gun that was used in these crimes. Which is a, certainly an important aspect of it. It gives it, if you believe Miller, it gives you an idea of where he, where he got the gun. <laughs> I'm amazed too, that they always seem to steal cigarettes. Every time they left, they took a tiny bit of money and a bunch of cigarettes. Right. They always, and that's they always, they always that's, tried to stock up. That's exactly <laughs> what Tina Griffin said. Jamie did. And he did. And, but there were no cigarettes missing, right. From the Clark station. Right. So right. what the hell? Like she could have just easily gotten these two Jeffs and been like, oh, you guys love to steal cigarettes. You probably were fighting over them. I mean, it would have fit her theory. Exactly. I just find <laughs> it amazing how, I mean, they all the guys running across the street with a mask with cigarettes under his arm. I'm like, wow, what a great, uh, great, successful robbery. And in her closing arguments, because it was brought out that the guy that Gutierrez gave the description of was actually lighting a cigarette. So then the question becomes, why did he need to steal cigarettes if he had some? And she said, have you ever known a smoker? I mean, they prepare for later. <laughs> Even if they have one pack, they're going to take more for later or something like that. I was like, a very simple way to think about living, to be honest with you. You're going to possibly threaten somebody's life for $60 and a couple of cartons of smokes. It's just a whole different world. Leslie, can you talk a little bit about the theories explored on the Truth and Justice podcast with Bob Ruff? Yeah. Um, so in episode three, Bob broke down exactly how Bill could have been shot from the way he was standing, how tall he is, things like that. So this theory is all going off the autopsy report from where the markings, how tall Bill was. So when we talk about inches and stuff, we're not talking about really 52 or 62 inches off the floor. We're talking about on Bill's body. So just keep that in mind. But Bob had explained that he thought that the gunshot that was described as gunshot number two by the coroner was actually the first gunshot because it was level. And it went in, how we were saying before, left to right on Bill. So that makes sense with the Clark Station setup that if he's standing near the register to use the register, your body has to be turned perpendicular to the person that you're serving. Because if you're facing the person that you're serving over the counter, you then have to turn a little bit to reach the register on the other counter. So he was standing upright, he says, 
the first bullet goes in left to right, very level. And you can see that on the autopsy report, it goes straight across the bottom of his heart. And then there's a second shot that goes, it looks like it kind of goes near up near his shoulder. It's, it's more by his, his armpit on the front of his chest. And then it slices down his heart diagonally and goes in the top chamber through the pulmonary artery and down the other side top chamber. So he says he's probably standing upright when the level shot goes in. And then the second shot, he probably fell or collapsed or, you know, hunched over a little bit. And then that accounts for why the second shot is angled. So with these big variations in little Jeff being short and big Jeff being tall and Jamie being tall, Some of us listeners were wondering, how could that information be used to determine which Jeff could have pulled the trigger? So because I was such a good little sleuth two years ago, I actually went and got people who were the exact same heights that we saw. I got um, a person that was 5'7", when Jeff Miller was 5'6" a person who was 5'8", a person who was 5'10", and a person who was 6'1". So the reports say that uh, Durbin was 5'10 or 6'1". And if you Google gas station gun robbery surveillance, most of the people hold their arm straight out with, you know, holding the pistol. And I think it's because they're scaring people and directing them with the gun. And then eventually they just pull the trigger with their arm out. So I just had all these different sized people hold their arm out and measure from the floor up. And it was impossible for a tall person to shoot a level shot at only 52 inches. So this is just all speculation. It was just, you know, a little experimental thing to see. But a short, the shorter person who's 5'7", their arm length was naturally held up at 55 inches. And, you know, then again, we have the wound on Bill was at 52. And as the person gets taller and taller, that where they hold their arm out gets higher and higher with somebody just an inch taller holding their arm out just one inch more. And then it kind of levels off like a 5'10 person and a 6'1 person both held their arm at 61 and a half inches. So that's nine inches higher than the bullet that went through Bill. So if you're just going off that little tiny experiment, it probably wasn't Durbin and it probably wasn't Jamie. I don't think they would be able to get a level shot that way in this situation we're describing. And you can go on the Truth and Justice page. There were like over 200 comments about this when this was all posted in the fan group. And there were other people who are, you know, ballistics experts who did videos with trajectory and things like that. And, you know, it was just a cool little thing to think about. And um, again, that description that Bob gave was episode three, and it was at like the 28-minute mark. It's kind of all speculation, though, for us. Because, right now. <laughs> but because you would have to, because you would have to say that that person did. Yes, most people might hold the gun straight out. You know, you would have to, you would have to say that it was that person was standing, you know, here in this position, holding the gun straight out. Right. You know, which is the speculative part of it you know and, if we knew that for sure then we'd know 100 percent that it couldn't have been right and, and i mean that's that's all just us us guessing by based on you know what what we have but what we don't have is the exact details of 
where where Billy was found or, and everything else, where he was, where he initially fell, not after Williams moved it and everything, moved his body and all that stuff. So also on Truth and Justice, we had the Jim Clemente profile again. So if we go back, we talked about it in depth with the last suspect, Gatson. But what he said again were that it must be somebody desperate, somebody high, somebody really pissed off at somebody else. And he also said someone who is on the younger side, who's impulsive, who doesn't have a tremendous amount experience doing his particular crime, which is killing somebody and staging it as a robbery. He's not going to have like a great long-term job. He's going to have issues with relationships. And I think he's probably from the area. So if we think about that and we think about it being Jeff Miller, you know, he fits all of that. You know, I know Jim mentioned some stuff about the ulterior motive and, you know, it could have been staging and all that. But he matches everything else. And I think we can point out that Durbin doesn't match that stuff. Like, he's not desperate. He had a job. He, I don't get the idea he was high. Um, he could have just used drugs, but I don't get that feel that he was a drug addict. And I don't think he was really pissed off either. I think he was just conniving. But I do think that Miller fits this a lot better. I wondered about at the beginning of the episode and in early, I can't remember the exact date, but there was that fire where his mobile home got burned down. Right. It was before these uh, this little string of August robberies. Definitely before, but it was very close, you know, right. to the time. And it, you know, that just made me wonder did he need money? I never saw a resolution. They just said fire probe and there was no, I couldn't find a, a resolution to that probe. So it made me wonder if he, if he needed money. I mean, if his house was burnt down. That's um, a good, that's a good idea. Like, did he need money? So he burnt his house down for insurance or did he, his house burned down. So then he needed the money. I mean, either way he needs the money. Right. I always wondered if that was linked to this, uh, this crime spree just because it was just odd that that popped up. It's an interesting take. When I read that, I was thinking it was shortly after, I think the little murder was April 1st and the fire was May 30th. I was thinking more on the lines of getting rid of evidence. I wasn't thinking of the money aspect. So it's, the money aspect right. is probably more logical. Ooh, I didn't yeah. think about that. I think in Truth and Justice, if that was ever discussed, that what you're saying, I remember Bruce was that um, they were thinking he burned it down to hide the evidence. You know, a guy like this would probably thing. be more likely to do an insurance fraud than to try yeah. to get rid of evidence. Because the way they were, Jeff, the way maybe. they behaved, evidence uh, getting rid of evidence didn't seem like it was that important. But it was just something that came to my mind. I'm like, oh, he burned his trailer down to get rid of evidence on that April 1st killing. Right. Or maybe the mastermind, Jeff Durbin, had told him, burn your house down, get rid of all that stuff. Durbin was, yeah, Durbin was cagey, right? He he was the smarter of the two in that respect. Because if you think about the log files and how, you know, of course he was doctoring them to show a timeline that took him away from these 
which is why he didn't want to turn them over. Because if that was compared to, you know, where he actually was, that could be a problem for him. But he had forethought in that this is how I'm going to cover up these armed robberies. So cover up is, is kind of his thing. Yeah. Right. It's interesting that this fire happened right in the middle of all this, though. Yeah, it's like a climactic event, like on the timeline. It's almost like you do a robbery, it goes wrong, you take a month off, you get rid of all the evidence, and then you're like, okay, let's scale back and let's get these masks. And now I'm going to stay in the car and you're going to do all this crazy stuff. Okay, then let's take a plea deal for 20 years and keep our mouth shut and be happy about it. But I think Miller was a loose cannon. Because I, I don't think he anticipated him running running out to veterans with a gun and cigarettes and a mask. Yeah, right. Miller screwed it all up for sure. <laughs> yeah. The only thing Miller didn't screw up, though, was talking. He, he, you know, denied Durbin, you know, right up until the end that he was involved. So, you know, he was just really good about talking, not talking, that's it. He could have just been really scared of him. They probably had a real good talk about that. Now, speaking of Miller, we didn't talk about this in the episode, but there was a love note. And Leslie, you were going to talk about this, but and and you can read it if you can. But I have a few things to say about it. D- do you think this is from his wife? Now, Miller's but wait wife? a minute. Is it Miller or is it Durbin? Did you that, ever decide? That's the question. I thought it was might be Durbin because didn't Miller's wife say she was in an institution around this time? She would have, but we can't see the return. Well, why don't you read it and then we'll talk about it. Okay. So the note that was just dumped into the FOIA says, you know, it's like a, a, you know, a dear John letter kind of, that was just left on a kitchen counter and it's, by a woman, you know, the handwriting and everything is by a woman. It says, Jeff, the love that we had between each other will never match. I can't read the rest. And then sharing our love had to be something because of materialistic things. Money doesn't mean anything to me. I love you. Please don't forget me. If I don't get the girls, I will come to you. Call mom or write. Love you more. Signed, so-and-so. And then she actually puts Bloomington, Illinois. Um, and then she leaves, She puts like so-and-so and Jeff forever, XOXO. And then she writes, please don't get caught. Take care. I want to hear back from you in one week. Okay, so this is this could be Durbin because this is when he was on the run, right? Right. He's the one that ran. So my first impression is that this looks like it could have been written by a 14-year-old in high school. And what woman with children puts her name in Jeff forever? Like a, that, a girlfriend, definitely <laughs> a wife, right? What's the one about that says if I don't get the girls? I don't know if who she's talking about. If it could have sounds like a have, one of them thing. had children, yeah. But could it have been she's not even their mother and it's his children, or could it be it's her children? I don't know. Could it be it's her children? 
Because as tangible as it sounds like it's written by a teenager, but that one line makes me think that it's well, written by a parent. Yeah, we're just making fun of her. It's definitely a girlfriend. <laughs> well, no, it really could. I mean, yeah. It's just, it's insane. I, I do. Uh, why, why do you think that it's a girlfriend? Because she's gushy and in love with him. And she's willing to stay with somebody who's like, don't get caught. I love you. She puts her name in Jeff XXO forever. And she's writing it all. She's declaring her love. She's saying, oh, our love is so great. And unfortunately, it's over because of materialistic things. Money doesn't mean anything to me. I love you so much. Don't get caught. I'm going to talk to your mom. You know, that just sounds like a a new girlfriend. That doesn't sound well, like a wife. Here's, here's why it makes me think that it's a a wife. Come on, uh, Tammy. Our as a wife, we would be like, you mf her, you know. No, you would, a girlfriend, do all would a girlfriend this say they wouldn't call your mom, though? A girlfriend, right. I don't know if a girlfriend would mention the mom. No, it doesn't say yeah. your mom. It says call mom yeah. or right, which makes me think that they're together so well that they call each other's mother's mom. All right. Well, my note would say, you mf her, don't call me again and don't call my mom either. <laughs> Bye. Right. But I've, I've yeah. known a lot of people that are that are ride or die. Yeah. You know, and saying the girls, if I don't get the girls, that tells me that that's children, you know, so it's a, it's a woman with multiple children for sure. And she's um, also saying, if I don't get the girls, I will come to you. Does that mean if I don't get custody of my children, I will also run away with you and meet you wherever you are going? I think that could be what that means. But the, what gets me is that I will come, I will come to you, call mom or write. It could be a threat. It could be, if I don't get the girls, I will come to you. Like if you take the kids, I'll come get them myself. Or it could be, if I don't get my kids, I'll come meet you. Yeah. I don't think it's a threatening letter because she's all no. love you. Blah, what blah, unredacted blah, blah. version of this be in the files that Jamie's going to get? Yes. Maybe the address would still be uh, redacted. But we'll have a name. We'll get yeah. some of this. Yeah. And then you guys can decide who was right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's a girlfriend, a young, a one much younger than him. He was 28. So I, I'm guessing this is a 23 year old or younger, but Sammy, it could also be a ride or die mature mid 20 year old woman. <laughs> I think it is. I think it's a, I think it's a wife, but we don't, like well, all we can do is the love the love that we had between each other could never be match. <laughs> it's Do we know if Jeff Durbin had two daughters? It's damn shame our love had to be torn away or apart. Yeah. Because materialistic thing Money doesn't mean anything to me. I love you. Please don't forget me. If I don't get the girls, I will come to you. Call mom or right. Love you. I think if anything, we can all agree on it gives motivation that this, if it was Durbin's uh, partner who wrote this, it's not for drugs. We are. I already said I don't think that he was doing it for drugs. He wasn't high, but she says it's for materialistic things. So maybe he was bringing home money, or he was doing other side jobs, other thefts. Maybe he was just bringing home TVs or electronics or things like that, or a little bit of extra money. But she knows right. what's up, you know. What making enough at the cab? 
place. So he wanted to live better or maybe give her more stuff, or maybe he was saying, well, we can have all of this stuff if I do this extra stuff, but obviously on the run because she said, don't get caught. Please don't get caught. Right. When the podcast, we asked listeners to decide which one of the Jeffs was really in charge. So which one was the true mastermind in all of this? Well, we kind of discussed that. I think we kind of proved our case. And I mean, we think Durbin directed all of this. Just from our conversation here, we're pretty sure it was Durbin. Right. So did other people pick up on that when you you were listening to the episode? Did you have the same thoughts come to the same conclusions? Or do you think we're barking up the wrong tree? What do you think of the dynamic? I think maybe um, maybe the police thought thought that Durbin was the mastermind because of his sentence being more. They may have nailed him also as some police officers and state's attorneys tend to do by giving you more because you're not cooperative because he was not very cooperative at all. Remember, he was saying, I don't understand how you can pin this on me. I didn't do anything. I was just driving him around. I didn't run in there. I wasn't doing anything. So he was definitely had a plan, it seemed to me, to cover his tracks and pin everything on Miller. The question is, what did he have over Miller to make Miller so loyal to him? Was it a th- threat? Maybe he because burned his house down. <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> Maybe he did. Who knows how diabolical he was. Well, let's talk about that. Is there any indication that he is still like this? I mean, do we have any lists of his police involvement or charges or anything since he's been out or do we not know that? Or does he seem to be living like a regular life? Seems to be living a regular life. I, I, I seem to recall looking them both up and I don't remember there being any major charges since this incident. I just seem to recall not being able to find anything on Miller. So I don't know what happened to him. I do know, I remember from the Truth and Justice that his wife is still available, still around. Her family is. And then Jeff Durbin, I just know that he looks pretty normal now. It looks like his he's got a big family and that they like him. You know, he's involved with his family again. And I remember that so well, just from conversations with Jamie about, you know, look where Jamie is sitting in prison for something he didn't even do. And then, you know, somebody who's the same age, stature, He even kind of styled his hair the same way. Uh, You know, it's just out there living his best life right now. And, you know, how awful that is for him. Especially after the guy taunted him in prison about him being the one to have to serve time for the crime. He had the 1991 armed robbery charges. And after that, one charge of uh, registration, expiration, traffic charge in McLean County. That was it. That was in 2009. So that's it. Well, he's very 
he's got a lot of forethought, so he's keeping himself out of trouble and everything. But yeah, you let, that's true. If he would go into Jamie's cell and taunt him, that is very diabolical. So we're not even speculating when we say, oh, he's diabolical. He probably planned this whole thing out. He did plan a lot of stuff out and he is diabolical. We have <laughs> Jamie having a face-to-face interaction with him in Stateville. That is the kind of person he is. That's not speculation. So let's think about this. So they were, I think he went to Joliet at the time. That was when Joliet was open and he was in receiving. And I believe we talked about this a little bit on the Truth and Justice episode too. He would have had to make his way to Jamie if he was in prison at the same time. And I was asking Jamie about this extensively, like how would he gotten over there? And Jamie says, yeah, you can. There are plenty of ways that you can make your way to anybody, but you you have to kind of work to do it because if somebody's in receiving and then I, at Juliet at the time, it wasn't separate like Stateville has the has the NRC. This was just kind of a different area, but closer to general population. The point being he would have had to make an effort to find Jamie when he came in there, which is interesting. And then I think Jamie said he didn't think anything about it until he saw Durbin's name in some of the discovery that he received. And I did ask Jamie, like grill him down, like about the tattoo. I was like, did he have a tattoo on his face when he walked in there? Because I wanted to know so badly because I wanted to know if he had a scar on his face and if it could have been confused for the tattoo, like what was up with that? And no, Jamie was like, there is nothing on his face. Um, So I'm wondering, he said, but maybe I just didn't notice, you know, because this tattoo is so small, kind of looks like a mole. Did he get the tattoo in prison? Is that a prison tattoo that he got during there? Or was it, I, you know, I think he probably got it after that interaction because it might've been documented on his uh, lead sheet if he had a tattoo. Well, if we ever get the DNA testing, he's going to be a good candidate for that. And his DNA should be in the system because he, I think he was in prison after they started taking DNA from people that are in. Right. Because there could have been a struggle if he's the one that Gutierrez saw in there bothering Bill and smoking a cigarette in the back. You know, maybe he grabbed him, maybe he touched him. What do you think about that, Ray? Do you have any thoughts on him coming to the cell? I went looking at his criminal history I was looking at, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how. I've never been to Joliet, how they could move around. What I've learned from other ones is they can be walking by cells, going to other places, stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Did you see anything interesting in his criminal history? Do you see anything beyond what? We see in McLean County. There's nothing after he got out, like you said. The rest before was for a weapons charge in Wolfson County. Yeah, illegal possession of a weapon by a felon in '89. So then he would have had to have been a felon before. Oh yeah, '89. Right. He was in Joliet from from October of eighty nine to to May eighteenth of nineteen ninety. He got out. See, he moved around a lot. He had another a theft charge in Vermilion County, and that was back in that was in eighty one. 
So he's, you know, he's known in the system. Hmm. That was his first one. And then he just stopped when he got out. He did that. Yeah, all over the place. Sag- Sagamon County, uh, Vermilion County. Those were thefts. And then the charge with the weapon in Woodford County. These are all Illinois. And, and Miller was he, was, he was like burglary guy. So I think you're right. Durbin, Durbin, was, Durbin was a smarter one. He would say, hey, Miller, go little squirrel and climb over the counter and get the stuff and, and run. I'll pick you up. <laughs> I like that. He's a little squirrel with the, with the Uncle Fester mask. <laughs> yeah. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jane, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There's a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. 